0: I'm Stuart Kelter and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Ruben Last, has for the past 20 years been a general surgeon at the Albuquerque Veterans Administration Medical Center. Prior to that, he worked as a surgeon throughout New Mexico, including two years in Las Cruces and a year fellowship in Sydney, Australia. His interests and experiences range far beyond surgery, including travel to far-flung places throughout Europe, Ukraine and Belarus, India, Nepal, and Southeast Asia, Latin America, and Israel. His varied life skills derive from a wide assortment of work experiences before medical school, accounting and tax preparation, construction, social work for an HIV advocacy agency, consumer protection, legislative assistance to the New York State Assembly, waiting tables in restaurants, and constructing sets and working the lights for off-Broadway theater productions. As we'll hear in the interview, Ruben has made use of his multifaceted skills and passions in helping to create the Endorphin Power Company, an Albuquerque-based nonprofit organization providing support and advocacy to people recovering from substance abuse. In a similar spirit, Ruben is currently on the board of directors of Oslersymposia.org, which addresses and pushes back against the forces that cause physician burnout. So Ruben, old friend, welcome to delving in. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I hope that it didn't uh, embarrass you too much.
1: No, not at all. Uh, It's quite a resume. Well, you put it down, you got to expect a question or two. (laughs) There's the folks who work in the state legislatures and in Washington, D.C., they always carry two resumes. One that says the title of what they did, and then the other resume, which they kind of speak about later, is what they actually did. (laughs) (laughs) So I I did both.
0: (laughs) All right. So my first question for you, Ruben, is what did you learn from your varied work experiences before medical school? And how did you come to the conclusion that medicine was the right career path? Now, that's, that's a big question, because there's a lot of varied experiences. So you take your time with us, it could take a good, you know, 20 minutes to talk about (laughs) this.
1: I learned how to speak with people on their level. Now, it's not about moving to their level, it's about naturally being on their level, being in their vocabulary, being at some level, at some point in their world experience. And that basically starts, I guess, just anyone growing up, playing in the playground, you know, getting beat up in the schoolyard, you know, and that moves forward then into your work life, love and work. And my first job ended up being, after a stint as a junior Sunday school teacher, being a tax preparer. And so all of a sudden I'm 17 years old and I am asking people what can be considered in our country, very intimate questions. I guess when everybody's a farmer, everybody's a farmer, they know what the deal, they know what the business is, they know what a, a bale of hay is getting you this year. But when you have people walking into an internal block office with their W-2 forms, and in that era, there were many, many, many write-offs know, you're intimately asking about their debt load, what they're spending their money on. And they're answering. I was actually sort of stepping outside myself saying, boy, this, this person is just answering my questions. He has never seen me from Adam. I'm a 17 year old, I mean, you know, kid, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it just, it, it moves from there.
0: Well, and money, of course, is one of the most personal questions you could ask an American. <laughs> you know,
1: we're very private about things like income. Yeah, exactly. That was the point I was making. You know, it, it, We kind of play our cards very closely here when it comes to our economics. And here the patient patients, they weren't paid. The clients were just putting it all on the table right then and there. Different ways of managing money. The whole concept of doing everything on credit. A little foreign to me. My parents were depression babies nothing was on credit they didn't even have a credit card until maybe the the mid 90s where you, you had to have one even just to order a a broadway show ticket or something you just you could not navigate without they kept the sears charge card for 40 years and it sufficed and that just kind of moved forward into the other things when you're in a kitchen working a, a wait staff you're again interacting with people another set of expectations legislative assistant back and forth between offices, you're on different sides of the aisle. You, we've got that Congress is, is, is divided and fractured now. It, it, I worked for the New York State Legislature. The assembly is very fractitious, yet you have to work with other people. And so it, it just sort of segues into being comfortable talking to people, getting their story, being comfortable with yourself. And I guess the thing that brought it all together, medicine worked for me, but to completely refine it, I have found, and I've said this to residents that I'm talking to, a couple of improv courses really, really helps. Insofar as it's not going to make you a brilliant actor or a brilliant, you know, recontor. It lets you be relaxed with what you know and who you are and the limits of what you're going to say. You find your own boundaries, so to say. So that when you're talking to somebody about some profound experience, you are connecting with them. And by virtue of connecting with them, it becomes authentic and appropriate. I don't know how else to put it.
0: So let me just clarify a little bit. When you say talking on their level, you're not talking about hierarchy, you're really talking more about wavelength.
1: Yeah. Listen, I've had bosses talk at me, you know, do this, do that. Okay. Well, that's appropriate for the situation. Do this, do that. So there's hierarchy there for for, for a reason. Uh, This is very clear in construction. This is very clear, I guess, during residency. Uh, But then you move out of that. The whole concept of working with a a patient, trying to get them to tell you the history of what's going on, because therein lies the diagnosis, that means being on the same wavelength. Doctor has spoken. Tell me this. Don't tell me any more than that. And then turn around and walk out of the room because I am brilliant and I'm going to just give you the diagnosis and I will give you the treatment. And if you don't take it, well, that's your own problem. That's not going to work on any level.
0: So you're really talking about the interpersonal aspects of being a doctor and and, and being a surgeon, which I think a lot of us assume that oh, to be a surgeon, you have to have incredible knowledge and technical skill. The interpersonal skill is gravy. But what you're saying is it's not just gravy, it's an
1: essential. I believe it firmly to be an essential. And I think the only way to access that is, well, let me rephrase, in order to have more gravy... <laughs> <laughs> and make the underlying polenta, the underlying, whole end, the underlying bland, <laughs> mundane interaction of a gallbladder irritation that needs to come out, you need to have the gravy. It's very easy to put all patients into their diagnosis. To talk about the, the gallbladder patient in room 323. That's a person. To you, as one who operates on this particular syndrome day after day, week after week, it's another gallbladder. To that person, it is the most significant thing going on in their life at this moment, that pain that all of a sudden jars them into the reality of their mortality, cannot focus on anything else. That has to be recognized and it has to be dealt with. It's a deeply personal moment to them. And it's very easy to get beyond that. And, you know, I think a lot of the talk and training early on has has spoken about, you know, certain dispassionate imperturbability that you bring to the the encounter that the patients expect you're going to be the knowledgeable one who knows all the answers. And things have gotten so complex, uh, the body itself starts so complex, we don't know all the answers. And so it's about getting as close to what will make this person feel better as possible. As well as weighing in not only their expectations, but more and more. The expectations of the institution you're in, the media world that you circulate in, all these things impact on the patient's expectation and on your expectation of your of yourself as well as what the institution that you work for is expecting of you. You know, it's very easy to just say, increase your productivity, do more. But it doesn't take into account the sort of very, very individual nature of the particular patient.
0: Well, it sounds like you've been able to retain your feeling for people and your empathy for their pain and suffering and and fear, as opposed to, I think, maybe I'm stereotyping surgeons and doctors, but I I thought that medical school trained doctors to be dispassionate and a little bit removed and objective, quote unquote, uh, especially surgery.
1: Well, a lot of that surgery, the the thought as to how surgeons navigate the world, much of that comes from the media. It's always the arrogant surgeon in whatever movies. What's his name? Uh, It was called The Hospital. I'm trying to remember. It It was the same director, producer who did Network. It's just clear. Surgeons. Uh, are expected to be, becomes, it always moves the plot along. You know They always get pie on their face at the end because of their imperial dismissive nature, bites them in the foot. That That's a very media generated image. But it's also in the founding of modern surgery, the various big names, Halstead is one of them, Dr. Halstead, Dr. Coker, they were operating in the 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century where surgery had hit a point of inflection. Now we actually had something to offer. Prior to that era, surgery pretty much limited itself to extremity injury, extremity trauma, draining abscesses, things like that. Well,
0: there was no anesthesia
1: yet. Well, anesthesia was from the 1840s forward, but it really had to do with the workshop and the tools and the techniques. Now, question is anesthesia for everybody you know anesthesia has been around i think 1846 it was first demonstrated it's just who's doing anesthesia on a battlefield the the civil war meme of historical note is amputations where whoever's the best was the fastest and can get it done without bleeding anesthesia did not play a whole lot into that but now we're moving the next 50 years with just a tremendous leap however the techniques still first of all had to be developed and patients themselves were in a a very sort of extremist type situation. You didn't make a diagnosis until very late. And it's still very, very, it's very invasive. We have not refined things. And the mortality rate is very, very high. the infection rate particularly, right? Infection rate, uh, not controlling the bleeding, getting into things bigger than you were anticipating, where you don't have CT scans. That cancer does not make itself known until it's a big fungating mass somewhere within the body. And it's not going to be an easy little chip shop taking out a little piece of colon that has a little cancerous polyp. It's going to be a huge obstructing tumor. So it it just, it boils down to the the results are often not so good and you have to live with yourself and face going forward the next day. I could almost liken it to a military commander who knows they're going to be taking losses and still has to send his troops forward.
0: So, Ruben, what you were alluding to earlier is that somehow you have avoided climbing on top of the pedestal.
1: (laughs) Yes, I've avoided climbing the pedestal. (laughs) All pedestals.
0: Right, right. So, all the power to you, which is an oxymoron, but.
1: uh... (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to hurt anybody
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're, you're not you're, you've you kept yourself focused on the patient patient's needs and, and community needs, which we'll get to later in the interview. It's not it's not about you.
1: I think that started at a very early age that it's not about me.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Your parents drilled it into you, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Basically, you know, it, what makes anybody anybody? It's a whole range of experiences. When I was uh, very young, <laughs> like two years old my brother got very very sick and you know all of a sudden here i am that first child the world's mine <laughs> and now i'm sharing it and all the attention is going to someone else and although i don't have the words i cannot describe the actual situation i kind of felt like you know i've i'm i'm on my own number 1 number 2 i'm i have got to do what it takes to make myself make my parents make everybody feel better, you know. And I think that's a foundational experience. And from there it just it just kind of goes forward.
0: And, and that's that's a, a tremendously positive way of dealing with sibling rivalry.
1: <laughs> you know, because it easily can oh, go a different awful. way. I was awful as an older brother, but I and i learned the results of that. You know, it's take these experiences, take these lemons and turn them into lemonade. You know, you want to catch flies. You got to use honey, not vinegar, <laughs> you know, you, you know, what's that concept for understanding that that person probably has a world map that in some respect is similar to you do not do what's odious to them. If it's odious to you, it's just that the whole map just gets sort of put in there provided it's done in a loving, tender manner. You know, it's very hard I mean, to overcome if, if you never have the love or the connection, it's very hard to overcome.
0: So, Ruben, I'm still trying to get a sense of how you chose medicine after all those other stints at so many different things. I mean, it sounds like you, you really value having had such varied experiences beforehand. It makes it possible to relate to all sorts of people. But why why medicine then?
1: Yeah, a variety of reasons. First of all, having depression era parents, medicine was always put up as a very stable Career. It would make them very proud. It would. It, it. In some respects, my family was somewhat powerless before the medical establishment of the time. My grandmother got very, very sick with cancer about the time I was. I was uh, two year old, three year old. Again, that my brother was being born. She did have a mastectomy, and it worked, so to say, for about six or seven years till the time of about twelve and, and thirteen. And I just saw. We as a family saw how, in some respects, she had become the patient in room 323, this to be sent to radiation oncology, to be sent to surgery, to be sent for chemo. And given the the idiosyncrasies of that era, there was a lot of money to be made on just seeing a patient, sending a bill. You know, there's no regulation per se. I mean, even the car service guys were in on it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, because it, was, it was just a tremendous amount and of, of sort of being directed, holding this carrot of you're going to get better. She never got better after that recurrence. And it, it became evident to me going to the hospital. There was a lot of something going on here. It looked pretty darn powerful, you know. And I'll be honest, you know, coming from this sort of <laughs> – Diminished family, given you know the circumstances of the time, it's all of a sudden to enter this thing that was almost a temple where everybody walked around with sort of an imperial attitude. I was intrigued. It's not necessarily what I wanted, but I was intrigued. But could I have a a a a go at doing this? Could I have go at doing this right? You know, these were thoughts that sort of distilled up.
0: At the risk of uh, some hyperbole here, mm. you know, that was an era where doctors were still God. oh my god. <laughs> and, and, and and being a surgeon is the most like being God in terms of, you know life and death.
1: It was an era where the surgeons had reached the pinnacle of control. If you look at the development of American medicine from the revolutionary colonial time forward, you know, medicine was not the driving powerful GDP force that it is then and today. Uh, It was pretty much a home cottage industry. Most people took care of their family at home. Not that medicine, establishment medicine, really wasn't establishment. There was four different groups competing for some sort of authority. There's the allopaths, which is what I am, the people who basically use medicines, who do these interventions to counter symptoms. There was the homeopaths, there was the chiropractics, there was the eclectics. There was this group called the Tomlinsonians, Christian scientists. All these various organizations were offering a form of medicine under theory and they were competing and it was about basically getting clients and you know if you could sort of sell your horse and pony show to somebody and they got better it spoke well of you and if not well it was a bad disease it took a whole century to create authority to get the authority from the legislatures for the allopaths to essentially assume ascendancy because their medicine actually began to work they were using scientific method long story short Surgery became the profit center, it created the hospital, it even created the Hospital Review, the American College of Surgeons were the first organization to do that. And it's pinnacle of its power is essentially in the 1940s and 50s, if, in my opinion. And in the early 70s, about 10 years after Medicare is passed, these guys are making bank, hospitals are making bank, all of a sudden this huge population that now has access to care in terms of that somebody's gonna pay for it. You know, these were becoming temples. And that's about the era that I began to observe what was going on. And the fact that my, parent, my mom did work as a dietary aide, my, my, my grandmother did work as a uh, housekeeping of a hospital. Hospital was always, was always very central. She worked at Mount Sinai and because my mother and grandmother spoke Spanish. We called it Manzanilla. We called it the Apple Hospital. household was <laughs> 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 that's, that's
0: so funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> So the next logical question would be, okay, so we, we have some understanding about why you chose medicine, why surgery? And that's, that takes a special kind of person, I think, to be willing to cut people up. My, my, my father had a, a joke that he told a million times until we laughed, uh, that he was a happy, <laughs> a- sorry, <laughs> <laughs> just
1: he, build up makes me laugh because I know was, that person, <laughs> he, he always proclaimed
0: that he was a half a doctor because he could cut you up and not put you back together. So, <laughs> <laughs> But you you became a, f- a full surgeon not a half a surgeon
1: not a half surgeon um well there, there is a famous surgeon who says uh ambrose pare he was a, a french uh, surgeon i think of i'm trying to recall i, I think he was in the pollyannic era basically said i merely dress the wounds god heals them <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh hopefully we all get put back together one way or the other after we're cut up <laughs> again much of my what is this? My, you know, again, I didn't really have any physicians or surgeons or family. You know, we were almost at the mercy of the medical establishment, including for employment. Again, Mount Sinai being a very major employer in uh, Spanish Harlem in New York, uh, El Barrio. I wanted to be able to do it all. Part of that, again, you know, it's it's my psychology that that depression-era parents who had to make do, and so we made do with everything, and that also meant education, learn it, learn as much as you can. Whether it's fixing a blender, whether it's figuring out how to mend a a broken window, whether it was my father was just the home handyman guy who could just just about fix anything. We were given tools at an early age. I'm given this image of the surgeon being sort of this powerful, imperial type. And I wasn't trying to be imperial, but powerful. You got to be able to do something, do something. And so it just, my impression of a doctor not having doctor role models per se was they're the guys on TV who do it all. And so when I got to medical school, I was expecting I'd be learning how to take out an appendix or doing a gold well No, I was, <laughs> I was. Painfully surprised. You don't get to do that as a medical student. You get to observe. I was shocked. I thought we come out of here being a fully trained, go do it all, and then you choose to do medicine versus choosing. I had no idea of the residency system. Literally, I'm in middle to the latter part of medical school when I find find out what the actual surgery application for residency, rank system, pyramidal system. These are all how you take your undifferentiated surgical intern and make them a fully productive surgeon. All the steps involved. I had no idea of these steps and I'm in medical school at the time. It's just, you kind of just focused on your classes right now. And this, I don't know how to put it, this ethereal image of what's next. It's just, you, you got blinders. It's, Getting through the first year, getting through the second year, now you're on the wards. And that's when you begin to learn how the system actually is put together.
0: Or even before that, getting through pre-med and getting through the MCATs. I was lucky. It's it's, it's, it's a big gauntlet. Well, you probably were a little bit more than lucky. I mean, you went to Columbia Medical School. It's probably <laughs> not that easy to get into.
1: <laughs> well, you know, put it in perspective, it, it's, it is hard work. I'm not going to say it's not hard work, but you also have to have the right focus and the right direction. And I, how do I put it? I was lucky in that I met people who ate, who enabled me to figure out how to get good grades. You know, it, 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 that's a big deal. You know, it, B's hurt, C's
0: hurt. You have to be close to perfect in terms of your grades.
1: Pretty high because it is a competition. At the era that I entered, I think... I, I was, I was, I just entered high school in 77. I think there was some survey done that something like 60 to 70% of all entering freshmen of that year for college wanted it to be pre-med. It, you know, medicine had taken such a dominant role, whether it was TV, you know, it was also the era where everybody watched the same shows on television. So everybody saw MASH, everybody saw emergency, everybody saw these dramas. They're dramas that are set in medical situations. They are not medicine but they're dramas and then and they see the characters and they identify with the characters. And so this created, I think there was some soap opera, Luke and Laura, uh, General Hospital, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it totally swept. And this was also about the era where doctors were really, really, really making bank as autonomous, independent, dictating how things should be, what they should be. It just sort of, everyone wanted to be one.
0: I mean, doctors were getting wealth and power and status all all of it.
1: It was the pinnacle of that. And it had to be, it was changed. The ascendancy of the health management organization, you know, it comes out of actually begins, big discussion begins during the Nixon administration, the Republican administration It is advanced, the whole idea of Channeling all the Medicare, all the Medicaid into health maintenance organizations to control cost. All of a sudden, costs became a a, a a big concern, well, because they were actually getting bigger <laughs> yeah, <they were> enormous <laughs> was proposed under Carter. It was at a democratic administration, and it was actually realized under Ronald Reagan. So I mean, this is almost a bite the the bipartisan sort of, punting the football that we got to do something about this. And because, you know, it, it, we're going to somehow control, and when you control, you're going to impose, you're going to bring other forces in to manage the physicians, manage the healthcare services that are being paid for. All right. So if I can go out on a limb a little bit, so in,
0: instead of managing costs, it funnels some of the profit to shareholders. I mean, the the, the cost of medicine is keeps going up if this is supposed to control the costs. It's
1: in a very, very woolly gray zone area. Yes. The bulk of it on some level comes from the government medicine, organized medicine, in essence, on some level is a, let's use the word. It's a socialized service. It's a communal service. A county has to put float bonds to build a hospital uh a private organization for, for, for a public hospital Oh yes for a public hospital so it's 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 a communal effort a major corporation has to float bonds get investors to build a private hospital regardless if you're part of a union if you're part of a large corporation if you're part of a government employee you're going to most likely given the idiosyncrasies of the you know how we organize our work and our pay in this country you are most likely, hopefully, going to be offered a health plan, which is in effect a distribution of the the liability and the care o- across a great, uh, a large number of people. But we have it in very distinct sort of silos. That's what makes it very difficult. It's not coordinated. It, it's almost depending on the community to live in or the job that you have. It ends up in a particular silo that doesn't necessarily match the other silos at all. So it's. You know, I'm trying to it's a very fractured system. There's not a big public health component because that's kind of pushed off to the government in our country, whereas in other countries, public health is just as much part of the acute care. Large mining and uh, interests and manufacturing interests in the 1880s, 1890s began to concern themselves with occupational injury. We've got these highly trained workers. They get injured. We need to have them back to work. You know, it's it's good for publicity as well. But they were not concerned with occupational disease. What happens over decades of exposing yourself to beryllium, to coal dust, to asbestos?
0: So I guess what you're saying is that both the what medicine had to offer improved, mm-hmm. but also social awareness of of people's medical and health needs also increased. And if you, if, if you put that all that together, plus some, probably a, a whole bunch of other factors that adds into greater and greater need for medical services and the greater and greater costs involved. So that's, that's part of what's going on. Here. It's
1: part of what's going on for sure. And, and, you know, under the fee for service old system, the more that you operated, the more more people you treated, the more you were reimbursed. It, it becomes, it's a very, how do I put it, tried and true way into a middle upper class. Economics are much as part of our, our lives, as is love, as well, just, as is what you're going to eat the next day. You know How are you going to eat? Where are you going to eat? Ruben, let's
0: go back to the question, though, about why surgery? And I guess while you're answering that question, why general surgery? Why not some <laughs> very specialized procedure where you could make oodles and oodles of money? <laughs>
1: again, watching my dad work, watching my mom cook, watching my mom work. She did a lot of handicraft. My mom was a recreational therapist. She could turn a bottle into a vase with all sorts of techniques. My mom had her own workshop in the basement. My mom uh, had wanted to be a fashion designer, was being tracked into becoming a a machine operator seamstress. She said, no way, I'm not doing that. So she went back to school and became an executive secretary, that madman type Era in the 1950s. It was, <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's really wild to look at these pictures of my mom in the 1950s. Anyway, my parents were very productive with their hands; they were very capable of doing things, and we, as kids, were able to just do things with our hands, so it, it felt very satisfying. I ultimately, after two years of being a tax preparer, just one day managed to get a job after working a summer in construction, and the employer decided to send me to school to be a, a, a site super slash civil engineer. And I took them up on the offer. I mean, it's free education. All all education was good in my household, so we did that. And I ended up transitioning to the Carpenters Union in New York, the uh, United Brotherhood of Carpenters uh, District Council. And I got into the union and that furthered my technical education. You know, I like working with tools. I like working with hand tools, to be honest with you, and power tools to some extent. But, you know, they are very basic in their curriculum. You start off using hand tools. And when you're doing the carpenters apprenticeship, even though you may go off to being an elevator, you know, someone who constructs elevators, you may never work with wood again. You may be nothing, you, know, you may be a sheet rocker, you know, you, you may be a locksmith. These are all within the realm of carpentry, but the basic courses were hand tools. And from these basic maneuvers, you then branched out into any number of things. Uh, and so that's the structure. So this is the segue into- uh, This is the segue into medicine. Medicine, because it's all tools. It's all tools. It's all getting things done. It's all seeing what you've done at the end. And I ended up on several hospital construction jobs. So here I am like, wow, I'm I'm this carpenter in this major construction of this hospital. I did lead backed sheet rock that they're using in the radiology suite, as well as all these uh, doctors in suits coming through with their hard hats, inspecting the facility. (laughs) It all kind of merged, and I said, you know what, I, I want to... You want to fix things. I want to fix things, and I want to go forward with that dream that would make my mother and father very proud to be a physician. And again, I thought I was very blindsided by the fact that in TV, everybody seemed to be able to do everything. So I thought if I go to medical school, I'll be able to fix things.
0: Okay, and why general surgery and not um, something more specific?
1: Well, that's when I realized that I had to do the... If I wanted to have the full range of tools at my disposal, be they medicine... Be they actually interactive psychological talking, talk therapy, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, when two people talk, something happens between them and it can be healing, or whether it be actual cutting and sewing and bringing together all surgical tools, all construction tools are an extension of the hand. You
0: saw general surgery as as more of an opportunity to connect with the patient? All these things, to bring them all together. Well, and and you are kind of a generalist as a person.
1: (laughs) Why not not a general surgeon? I never master anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I do. I get my act together for surgery. You know, everything else may, but I do get my act.
0: It's just one more question about your background before we launch into a different topic. And that's okay, so we we've answered uh, why medicine? We've Mm -hmm. answered why surgery, why general surgery, Uh why the VA system?
1: Yeah. And it seems wow. like
0: you, it seems like it's been a good fit for you. You've been there for twenty years. Yeah. Uh, of course you came to Albuquerque years and years ago for your residency. So mm-hmm. that's how you got to know this part of the world as opposed to Brooklyn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so why 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 the VA? What's what's your attachment? The
1: VA? I was attracted for several reasons. There is always a c- component of and I, I don't know that this is talked a lot about much in sort of the making of a physician. You know, I think it's some 70s book, The Making of a Surgeon. I, I guess I should read it someday, but uh, my family was personally served and was affected by US military, wars, and, you know, the VA was part of that remediation or, or that, you know, amelioration. My father served in World War II. He was injured, both physically and psychologically. PTSD where where did he serve in world war 2 he was in he was in europe he was in the european theater in germany i mean that, that's where he you know was in a was blown up in a minefield it really really affected him how is ukraine doing so well against the russians relatively speaking to their size because they are dug in it is always harder to be the invading force and sometimes overwhelming numbers and strength aren't so overwhelming if you you know. And so he was actually one of the I don't know what to call it companies that were deep into the early push into Germany during the war. What he saw, the way he described the military hospitals, the way he described his own injury, where he was evacuated to, how it, it just his stories affected me. They became part almost you know it, what it was. It, it was this big outcry. Among Art Spiegelman, the, the creator of the book Mouse, not sugarcoating the experiences of his parents during the Holocaust. They, they say he has, in some respects, a post-memory. He himself wasn't there, but you see how it has impacted on his life, his choice. Oh, the next generation, yeah. Right, and so on and so forth. The injury occurred. Now, you can go forward and be pissed off for the rest of your life and 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 never managed to integrate back into society or you can try and the VA was there for him in that and so in some respects I've grown up with the VA you know when things were really affecting my dad it affected the family the VA was very early on to expand its therapeutic services to families. I got this in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s. So in some respects, my interaction with the VA has been the last 45 years on a sort of, me with them personally, but I mean, it's affected my family since my birth. My father getting services.
0: And it sounds like your father was willing to talk about his about his experiences. Which my understanding is that World War II that was more the case than, let's say, Vietnam. That it, because it was the "quote unquote" good war, and because and because military servicemen were coming out as groups, there was a chance to process among themselves first, and then with all the VA organizations and the, with all the support from the general public. That there was, I think, much more sharing of those experiences than in some other wars.
1: I would agree with that globally, but I would say that the experience of war, of trauma, is born individually. There is a collective component. There is a collective forgiveness, a collective charge. There's a collective charge to go off and do that on behalf of your society, on behalf of however you want to define it, your society, your neighbors, your family. The, the why we fight uh, that was a big uh was a, one World war II newsreels uh, motivational why we fight it gives these big maps and pictures of the world with you know access powers and ally powers and he had a the, the a training sergeant and that's not why we fight we fight for our family your friend your but you know what i mean it's 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 so many different levels because they're going to destroy your family if you don't you know all that you know it's it, it, yeah, primal reasons are primal and you know, are personal my dad did not talk about his traumatic experiences to well into his 60s when they began to be accessed. He, he was part of that generation, just get on with it. And that, there's a distinct reason for that occurrence. I don't know how to describe it. Psychological, sociologic, we won that war. Now- Decisively. But not every person who fought in it Won that war. You know, this isn't a Hollywood ending. You go home wounded. You go home disconnected. You go home in, in very different, you know, how to very, very conditions. The point I'm making though, regardless, overall, there was a hero's welcome. The hero's welcome is a very important concept. Whether you win or whether you are utterly defeated, on some level, you earn the hero's welcome. The the defeated Nazi forces have to reckon with the fact that they absolutely lost. They were decimated. The Japanese had to reckon with that. And so it's not borne out on their warriors. They did the best they could. They, too, get a hero's welcome, okay, because they know, their societies know, they did everything they could. To keep the Soviets on the on the, on, the, on, the, on from coming in from the east, to keep the Allies coming in from the west, they did everything. The Siegfried Line, they gave it, they gave it their all. They, they were fighting beyond you know, these images of Okinawa, these images of Berlin. You know, they're their last desperate. They get the heroes welcome, even though they were fighting for the wrong cause, the wrong ideology. You know, nonetheless, you take a situation like Korea, where it's kind of this police action. And and, and 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 you know nobody it's not on the same level of this thing we just did you know five seven years before you take vietnam which is this prolonged you take iraq where the, the society is kind of split why are we even there you know there is no hero's welcome you take post-world war one germany the that, way that some german word for the backstab you know they, they keep creating this idea that somehow we were not defeated we were in fact stabbed in the back by internal enemy forces, you know, and that's what we have to root out. It keeps the wound going, going, going.
0: So clearly you've developed tremendous empathy for veterans and all the various circumstances that that made them veterans. I'd like to talk at this point to talk about your community service. Uh, particularly your role in starting the Endorphin Power Company, which I love that name. That's <laughs> great. So, what what was the need? What was the process? And I, I think you made use of some of your carpentry skills, or at least uh, right, so that you, the, nothing is wasted in terms of uh, what you learn in life.
1: <laughs> I would agree; nothing is wasted. Endorphin Power Company. Well, it's a basically a community center, which has live-in housing. As of now, the current manifestation for people who have completed substance abuse rehab detox and are trying to work on developing new life skills and there's a
0: lot of overlap with the veterans community i imagine
1: there is yes there is it's not a va veteran organization per se but every you know anyone who has a substance abuse problem who finds themselves disconnected. I think the current, you know, what I've become understood is is, is addiction. The opposite of addiction is not, not being addicted, but it's being connected. So Lack of connectivity with other people, with your own life, with your own goals, is what leads to the great need that needs to be filled. I mean, you learn a lot about addiction medicine, addiction science, you know. Most addicts have their drug. You know, An alcoholic is not necessarily doing heroin. Someone who's doing heroin is not necessarily doing meth. Somehow, the interaction of this chemical substance fills that void. And unfortunately, it, it becomes such a sort of temporarily successful filling that you're unable to address the underlying cause. Well, these are people who've reached, in essence, That reckoning, that rock bottom, that this isn't doing it, and they have to get off the actual chemical dependence, and they do that in the context of a detox. Now, what are you going to do? And here's, you know, EPC defined, endorphin power company defined the the problem as multi-level. We treat people who are inebriated by bringing them to the ER, okay, the emergency department, ED. And we take them out of their environment where they were inebriated. We take them 5, 7, 12 miles you know, to a hospital emergency department. You're you know, given an IV. You're given some vitamins. You're observed as, as you detox. You treat whatever laceration may have occurred, uh, whatever metabolic imbalance. Uh, their, their glucose is too high. Their glucose is too low, whatever it is. And you can do that in the course of a 6 to 12-hour period. And then what? They're discharged back to the street. Not only that they're discharged, they, they stagger out of the emergency room. I mean, it's not as if they're going, being transported back to where they were. Totally disoriented, doesn't do anything to advance their cause. So you're
0: saying it's, it's like a Band-Aid, but worse? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, 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 well, you know, even the police, I mean, Albuquerque had, has a significant problem with folks who are living on the street because there's nowhere else who are in pain. Who are hurting themselves and hurting others you know it becomes a it's, it's, it's a multi-level problem they're taking up space in an er this isn't an adequate treatment for them and yet they are taking beds that could be devoted to other things that perhaps are more treatable Right, so, so there's
0: some some resentment in a way uh, of of them, because, oh, this is self in a way self-inflicted, you know, unless you really adopt the disease model, you can you can blame them, and then that doesn't help in their treatment.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, you know, there's so many reasons why people have end up with this as the only solution. It's complex what leads a person to have a substance use, what we would call disorder and the obvious taking to an emergency department is not the treatment and it's very expensive and that's what we do it's very expensive the hospitals don't recruit any of there's no money to be made It, it, it if we could somehow set up a real treatment for people who have a real definable problem and it's not that we don't know how to treat this it just needs the resources we could then free up the emergency departments to do what it does best. My own personal story with this, I was working on patients who would come in with severe necrotizing infections. Those are the infections where the bacterial uh, invasion of a foot, a leg, or an arm becomes overwhelming. They will die in a number of hours if you don't Significantly remove that infected tissue. The tissue is dead. Antibiotics won't penetrate it. The the dead tissue is actually a a reservoir of bacteria that can further invade. And so we it takes a lot of effort to remove the tissue and then to get the person rehab to reconstruct their skin, the overlying tissues, so that they can you know they become whole again. if so we're trying to make people whole. And and then what? They still have this underlying issue of disconnection. And so I was dealing with that on an individual basis, whereas my friend and the real founder of Endorphin Power Company, Sam Slishman, who was an emergency department resident here, then became an attending here. So he, he was the one who sort of put all the pieces together he, he <laughs> and, and said, we just started talking. We were talking. We, we ended up had, getting a meeting room at the UNM cafeteria and all these people, including the police, including the mayor's office, were saying, yes, we have a real problem. We're doing this wrong. What could we do to do this better? And Sam basically managed to incorporate a 503 nonprofit. And we got grants and we had plenty of labor because a lot of people were interested in working on this. We managed to buy a building with a big parking lot. I think it had been a former gas station on Zuni and Cardenas, uh, right across the street from a former psychiatric hospital that now is the Metropolitan Area Treatment Center. The county was looking, a lot of folks were looking at this. The county was looking at this as, well, what are we going to do? Well, it just worked out. You buy the, the psychiatric hospital and turn it into an acute care facility, and we will try to offer aftercare. And here's the special sauce, the aftercare, where people can live on site, in community, and work on their basically reconnecting, reintegrating to not go back to their compadres, their 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 circle. Drug addiction is a, I wouldn't call it, can you call it a social reference group? It's a peer group you can join at any time, okay? They don't want to go back to that group because that is the group, even if they may have friends, because that is the group of people who are gonna get them back on the substance again.
0: So is it similar in some ways to a halfway house
1: situation? Yeah, you know, I, why we call it the endorphin co- power company is it sounds a lot nicer than drug halfway house <laughs> or, or Est, you know, New Mexico STD clinic, like who wants to go there? <laughs>
0: <laughs> power company, that sounds good.
1: But if we want to substitute the endorphin release that you get from exercise, the release that you get on working on your own self-education, the release that you get when you accomplish something in community... You know, the, the four pillars of the program there is that every day needs to be spent on either some aspect of community, some aspect of economic productivity, some aspect of exercise. But the real sauce is that it's a community center as well. So you have a group of people who are working on their rehab and you have a community center where anybody can come and propose a project and do a dance class, do a ceramics class, do any number of yoga class, African dance. There were some, I don't, I'm listen, I'm, I have not, the beauty of this organization is that Sam developed it with a whole lot of people. A lot of those founders were, were, were on nice pictures on the wall. But we're not involved anymore because it is self-sufficient
0: right so this sounds like a lot more than a halfway house in the sense that that there are community activities right there
1: that's it that was that that's the special sauce it's the community if the if the, the opposite of addiction is reintegration is connection then you need to be connected to a community and best form of that i even think the talmud goes into that is when nobody knows who you are other than the person who's interested in yoga. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't say that in the Talmud, I don't think. <laughs> well, it has to be charity and things like that. It, the highest degree is anonymous, you know, to, to just anonymously support something. So,
0: Ruben, I don't remember marketing being one of your many uh, activities before medical school, <laughs> but maybe it was the theater experience, uh, you know, that oh, pre- pre- presentation is, is everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's important. The actors, uh, they need their... <laughs> You know, I I wanted I was I wanted to be a bit of an actor growing up, but yeah, I didn't have time. I didn't have time and acting takes a lot of time. And so when I was in medical school and they were doing productions, when I was in high school doing productions, I found I was better off doing the set. I come in within a weekend. We build this set. It it looks great. As you see, you know, it's polished. And I'm done. I don't have to go to rehearsals. I don't have to say my three lines where somebody has 450 lines to be waiting (laughs) around to be part of the chorus where I do nothing except dance for 20 minutes. You know. (laughs) And so I just, you know, I I was lucky that I I had a good high school experience. That Broadway wasn't so tech was so tech heavy yet. It was still hanging lights and plugging in. You know, uh, I don't know how to call them switchboards and you know everything. it, It was an integrated computer chip. You needed someone to go up on the scaffold. Focus the light. You need somebody to plug into the, the, the switchboard so that you could go easily transition from scene to scene. There was a lot of labor involved, basic stuff again. So I got to, I, I, it was, that was, that was fun. And there was no OSHA either. <laughs> no, oh, oh, now it comes out. Uh, now it comes out. Off uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. Broadway is the, <laughs> beyond the, the pale. The good old days.
0: <laughs> so l- l- let's segue now to talking about your involvement in Oslersymposia.org. Which is my understanding is not so much about the VA or about the, the patient, but t- the doctors taking care of themselves so they can take care of the patients. And the, in, you, you have a bio in, in because you're on the board of directors of this organization. And you, you say there is a surgical saying no one's cause is advanced if the patient with the bleeding ulcer is being fixed while creating ulcers and everyone else on the team around them. And then you say the Osler Symposia is one forum to search for the possible answers to the alienation that has become the daily practice. So it certainly makes a lot of sense to me that doctors need to take care of themselves and not burn out. But it also sounds like you're making a, a broader statement that this is affecting a large swath of the whole medical personnel everywhere and not just doctors for that matter, nurses too. No.
1: And so Osler very, very much part of its DNA is it's not just doctors, it's doctors and nurses and it's allied professionals. So it's an organization where everybody has equal standing because we are experiencing many aspects of the alienation that the, uh, corporatization of healthcare has thrust upon us. So
0: so Ruben, I'm wondering if you can capture this in just like one anecdote. You know, w- when you really noticed maybe for the first time or it just sunk in in a deeper way for the first time this uh, kind of depersonalization of the healthcare system as as how it affects doctors or surgeons for and, right? nurses. and nurses and and, nurses. and yeah.
1: Basically the corporatization has, and, I, and I'm not against corporations. You know, this cell phone I have, this life that I lead, it, 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 the corporate body creates, the government is a corporate body. VA is a corporate body. You know, these organizations, specialization, assigning people to do specific tasks leads to greater productivity of solving the problems of human living, except that when it becomes solely self-serving for the investors or for the power structure of that particular organization. So, I, you know, what comes to mind is just, this has happened several occasions, you know, you really, the nurses, the physicians put a lot of effort, put a lot of heart into taking care of patients, into taking patients who have severe chronic illness, surgery in particular, we're able to perhaps treat one aspect of what's going on, but we cannot treat the whole global, whether it be diabetes, whether it be, high blood pressure, whether it be pre-existing conditions, you know, a, any surgery can sort of be successful insofar as you remove the diseased organ, you reconnected the intestine, but nonetheless, the patient goes on to succumb to either a heart attack or all of a sudden has a severe pneumonia or respiratory arrest, and, and you're just devastated. And the next day, the form is under your door as to chart review, peer review, you need to list everything that, you know, you did wrong, that the institution did wrong. It's like, there's no time to heal. You're, and I think this became very much in focus with the COVID crisis where so many patients were in this situation. And all that seemed to matter to anybody was that you had data points filled on a piece of paper. You know, there, there's no moment to say, wait a minute, how are you? You, you, that you're, you're, you're expected, nurses and doctors are expected to do things with limited information, with limited resources, and have 100% success. You know, you're 100% responsibility. And I'm willing to take on that responsibility, but we need some sort of feedback that says, despite this, we're going forward And we're going to get healed as well, because every injury to a patient is an injury to yourself as well. And there's a lack of recognition of that. There already was
0: a trend toward minimizing emotional contact or social contact with, with the patient because it's not billable, but then with COVID and the overwhelming of the hospitals, that became even more pronounced. And and it was really impossible to ignore at that point.
1: It seems that the institutions, you know, they they are they're overwhelmed and and it's all about data sets. I, I don't know how investor-run health systems managed with COVID, except that they must have gotten some money from the government and whether they're accountable for it or not, I don't know. But the deeper problem is rules and regulations are being imposed by centralized sources having their sort of their own data collection points and they don't seem to make sense to us on a daily basis who are interacting with patients. We have a saying, patients don't read the medical texts. They don't present in the exact fashion that is expected for what's called relative value units. These little units of sort of care. A gallbladder is just a gallbladder as far as the institution's concerned. Length of stay should be 1.7 days. Anybody coming in on Monday at two o'clock should be out by Tuesday at 7 p.m. It's just... It's completely dehumanized. It's very dehumanizing. It's imposing a structure on something that's not structured.
0: Right. So how does oscillate symposia... Uh, work you know, and what, what does it offer physicians and nurses and nurses? And, and, and just a little history Sir William Osler, I guess, was the father of modern medicine in the most idealized form of service, and so that's why it was na- named after him. He
1: is a, a founding force in organizing the hospital, organizing the training, and taking much of medicine from just book learning to the actual bedside. He, I think his one of his is. He was the one who developed the residency system that yes the books are necessary but it's in relation to the patient and yes the rules are necessary but in relation to the patient not about prestige not about social hierarchy but about patient care about listening and connecting i guess how we started this chat is you know listening and connecting the patient will tell you the diagnosis it's not about listening for the one or two checkbook things uh and the electronic medical chart that then all of a sudden fits out a diagnosis how it tries to address this basically conferences actual sessions where we all speak to each other about how injured we often feel when we are unable to make the connection with the patient or with our fellow providers That we are, again, placed into little silos where the eclectic or the Tominsonian or the Christian scientist is not going to talk to the allopath or the homeopath because we're just so focused on this economic structure of money-making rather than really at hand is people who are hurting and ourselves.
0: Yeah. And my understanding from looking over the website of OslerSymposia.org that it's kind of a combination of support, empathy, talking, and also play. And that's where your theater background comes in, right? There's some improv getting uh, physicians to loosen up.
1: Loosen up and nurses. Again, I have to make it clear. We we are, we're in our silos. We're trying to get out of the silos and allied professionals. It's open to, you know, these healthcare professionals. It's actually doing business now as equa because equa comes from the word that Osler used equinamitus, that you should be able to treat people. You should be able to interact with yourself, your colleagues, your patients, with a sense of focus on their issue, their problem, with a sense of imperturbability. And and it's it's really hard to get that imperturbability when you got a bunch of people with clipboards who are trying to mechanize. You know, this goes back to you know the modern hospital. A lot of things happened at the turn of the night of the 20th century. All of a sudden medicine has medicine. It has something that really will work. Surgery is beginning to work with controlled infection. That's Oslo's era. OK, but he's actually one of the founders, you know, one of the people who brought the focus on the patient, like Florence Nightingale, who essentially focused on what was really killing the soldiers. It was lack of hygiene. It was very squalid conditions. I mean, she, you know, we're, we're talking Crimean War era back in the, era, the, the, the you know, How far have we come? There's still a war going on there. The, the, the mortality rate was brought down from some exorbitant number to almost two percent just by cleaning the place up. Now I'm talking about people who are actually made it to the hospital. Obviously, you, you're you're hurt in battle; you may die in battle. But if you made it to the hospital, you had a two percent. You had a ninety percent chance of surviving based on reviewing the situation and and find, figuring out exactly what's the problem, and cleaning the place up and providing hygienic care. So, uh,
0: Ruben, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time for the uh, interview. It's been really delightful to connect with you and to hear about your life experiences and your reflections, uh, as always. So uh, we've been talking to, with uh, Ruben Last, a general surgeon at the Albuquerque Veterans Administration Medical Center, who's garnered awards for caring for patients, teaching medical students, devoting themselves to community service, and being on the forefront of uh, rehumanizing. That's our plan rehumanizing both both for patients and, and for people in the health profession. So, Thank you. All the power to you, whether it's endorphin power or not. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it all works.
0: This was fun. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.